I just want to show you some things here. A teacher, right? For my daughter, you know. Uh, in her class, there are uh, Rohingyas, there are Somalis, there are Arabic, there are English people. I don't know the teacher, right? All those for other teachers or not. But for my daughter, uh, I think we haven't got a chance to see my daughter, who is only seven years old, eight years old. This is what her teacher writes, you know. This is Arwan. He's a current resident of Milwaukee and a leader of his community, but he was born and raised a member of the Rohingya community that has come into the spotlight over the course of the last several years. He's about to have Andrew, a white Milwaukee resident who assists the Rohingya community, help read his daughter's report card. She's an excellent student. I can see her working hard every day. Her GPA is 3.86 out of 4. You should be very proud of her. All of her work is completed for all my classes, and I feel that she has been very successful for Wow. Yeah, and you know, so what I'm trying to point here is that, you know, uh, if given chance, if people has a proper opportunity, proper chance, they can strive you know, themselves, they can work hard, you know. But why is Arwan telling us this? His emphasis on education goes back to his people's home, Renkind State in Myanmar, what the Rohingya will refer to as Burma. I have, you know, when I live over there, I have friends, so... That's Irfan, another member of the Rohingya community in Wisconsin. When you were growing up, did most kids that were your age go to school too? Yeah. And then when, when did it, it start becoming difficult for people to go to school? Because there's school when you're younger, and then there's like high school, and then there's college, right? So you can, do, you can do most kids like go to elementary school, like fourth, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade. Then do they do most kids go to middle school, high school? No. In in Burma, they go into a school which is I my village. They can go to school in tenth grade. They don't have college. They don't have college. Uh, can go to school tenth grade. How far is the nearest college? No, you have to go to college is different, different state, different state, or is Rangoon, or is Aika, Saitri. So all, when, uh, a lot of people can go to college because there's a lot of money. People have not that much money, you know, so all the time when you go into a school you as student as student have to pay uh money a student have to pay salary like everywhere like it's like to yeah. travel to you know permits and you have to wait in time like when anwar explained how he got to college and it's so rural he had to take like a horse-drawn carriage, uh, a plane, a bus, uh, he had to walk part of it. It was just the most ridiculous story. It sounded like Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah, and so so in Mongo, where you're from, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's what, like 500,000 people when it, when it was what, before. Uh, how many high schools are in Mongo? It's one. Just who she's Mongo, that's one can go to 10th grade, they have 10th grade class. After that, if you pass 10th grade, so you have to go to college or whatever, they don't have this, nothing. If you have a lot of money, if you have, you wanna learn, and then you move different country, you know, or Bangladesh or India, you know, or because 
I'm from Burma. I can take him to college in, in Burma. Uh, I can go to college because I don't have, I'm not a citizen. I don't have no documentation. You know? And what are you going to do after college? Are you going to get a job? Are you going to use your education? Uh -uh. No, not a lot. I don't see a lot of people. They take in high school, they go into college, and still they go into crop. Nothing, nothing. What they do? Nothing. They got a little bit back years and they're doing potato, potato grow up, you know, like no education job. No job. Yeah, no job. No job, no. I mean, What's happened to the Rohingya there? It's it's denial of of services across the board, you know, and it's like if you if you if you are able to make some money, um, or you are able to get an education, what you normally expect to come from that is is just really not, and you know, and it, and for Irfan, it's like he was sitting there and it got so bad that he had to leave. Like it, it's just like there's you could you could you could live there, you could eat and you can sleep, but that's that's it. You know, it's uh, really. The Rohingya have been coming to America for about 15 years. In, in Milwaukee, when did this community come? When did these, uh, when did the Rohingya come to Milwaukee? Could you just tell us a little bit about their journey to the United States, if you don't mind? Just we could use that maybe for background information. And I know that Holly and Marissa would love to hear more too about that. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, here, you know, uh, in Milwaukee, I think uh, people start coming. Uh, 15 years ago, uh, around 2000, you know. So, but at that time, uh, although the numbers are very little, very small numbers. Uh, so I'd say the, the most majority people comes, uh, comes, you know, uh, during, uh, after the 2012, 2012, 13, 14, 15 now, until, uh, until the uh, Trump administrations, you know, comes. So during that year, during those years, I think most of the people uh, arrived in Milwaukee. So under this administration also, we see people are still occurring, but again, it's very few numbers. What Arwan is referring to is a series of 2012 riots taking place in Rakhine State. They targeted the Muslim Rohingya population, forcing hundreds of thousands of Rohingya to leave the country. So you want me to tell you how do I come back to Wisconsin? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you want me to tell all the history around? Or? Sure. Start where you want to start. Okay. So my name is Serpan and I I moved in Burma when I was 14 years old. I moved to Bangladesh in 2012. And then I come to, I take the boat and come to the Thailand. And then my brother, they are already in Malaysia. So I talked to them before I coming they agree I can come over there. They can send money from across the border. And then I come to the Malaysia. And I was uh, 15 years old. And then I working in Malaysia at the one school, like cleaning, cleaning job. And then I walk over there like three years. Uh, my brother, he working the university office over there, and then we 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 talk. Well, so he helping every refugee coming to the in America, you know, and then he he I got a university card, and then they give me interview like five times. And then I go to interview, I talk to them, they ask me why you moving your country, why you why you love, you know, what's so all that kind of thing. And I told them my country is they they try to kill me. 
So I was laughed, you know. If I stay over there, they're gonna kill me. So I was scared, that's why I laughed. And then in Malaysia, and then I, uh, in Malaysia, I stood with my brother and then we walking over there. And then we, we got an interview from coming to United States, right? And then we go interview all, talk about my history and then they bring me over here. And then uh, I live in, in Burma and I moved to the Bangladesh, it's different. And then I, I've been working for one month in Bangladesh. And then, then, and then my brother called me, he said, come over here and then I take the boat. It's, you wanna talk about the boat? Like, oh, this is a this is I a really got, interesting thing. So if if you're Rohingya <laughs> and and you want to be resettled, you have to I, go to Malaysia, right? Yeah. And you can't just buy a ticket to Malaysia. No, you, no, you can't buy no. a bus ticket or a plane ticket if you're Rohingya. You don't have any paperwork. It's not how it works. You have to you have to talk to the human traffickers. Oh, uh, when when I was I was coming to from. Bangladesh to Thailand, right? And then I was take the boat three in the morning. So we run, 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 run at the at the ocean over there. You know, we have to go to the boat, right? And then we take a small boat, a uh, small boat, and then is is too many people, their boat is going down under the water. So everybody jump, I have to jump, I jump in the water. And then I have my food, I have my clothes. So, and then because their boat is going down, everybody have to jump out, you know? So, and then I jump out, I got my, I, uh, I have with my body, he gave me his clothes and his food too. And then I grab it like that, I grab it like that, and then I jump in the water. And then I couldn't move, I tried to move. I don't move my hand, I just tried to move with my head. I couldn't move, you know. I say, hell no, I have to, I have to throw away my food, my clothes, everything. And then I do it like that. Then my mind, oh, I am moving now, right? <laughs> and, then, and then I'm looking under the water, my body, I say, hey, why are you here? Are you okay? You good? And then he looking me too, you know? And then, okay, now what are we gonna do? I said, okay, I'm not going again in Malaysia, whatever, I'm go back to home. Uh, the, the people who is sending the people, the guy, he told nobody can go back home. If anybody go back home, I'm gonna shoot him right now, or otherwise I'm gonna kill here, you know? Oh man, it's horrible. I was like, damn, what are we gonna do? We have to go back. We have to go back again under the under the water. Man, I was told my God, okay, whatever. So if I'm live, life I'm that whatever. And then and I and then I take we take again boat. So the boat is a small, the bigger, bigger shift is outside the outside the outside the big ocean, you know? The bigger ship, they can come in to close the border, right? So the bigger boat is very far from the, from the city. So we have to take a small boat from bigger boat. And then we will go over there. I see the people, man, my friends, you guys. Oh my, incredible, I see, wow. I, I can't believe if I'm gonna be live, coming back is life in the world, you know? And then, because I got a lot of issue, people, a lot of people is dying coming to from Malaysia, is coming like that, you know? So I was so scared. And then, and then I, with bigger ship, right? So there is three, three a small boat, they're running, running and then my board is coming close to the bigger ship, you know. I don't want to stay a small board because there's that much, that much love under the water in my body, that much.
much like one seat. Okay, yeah, and then I was jumping the bigger board, and then when I touched the bigger board, then I feel like a little bit comfortable because that one is bigger, a lot of people, you know, and we're coming, you know, and then we, we don't even know we are coming to our destination. Maybe we're gonna be die under the water or we're gonna be destination, that's two choice. So we got a lucky, we make the destination. So, and then I cross from Thailand to Malaysia border. So where did you go? You, you got dropped off in Thailand. Uh -huh. And then where did they take you? They take me in the jungle. So it's like everybody, right? Yeah, it's everybody is take is over there is jungle, right? So all the people is in the jungle. So uh, they have big uh, small houses or whatever put on the people over there like a camp like, a, like a camp you know it's a lot of people when i was coming looking out there damn oh my goodness all my people is out here you know <laughs> i couldn't see them many i couldn't believe it's that many people is come here What you're listening to are the sounds of a busy Burmese street, unladen with anti-Rohingya protesters. Buddhist monks and citizens of Myanmar march side by side, spurred on by radical sections of the country's Buddhist population. They claim that the Rohingya are the oppressors, murderers, and foreigners who are sent to disrupt Burmese life. Yet hundreds of thousands of Rohingya have been forced to leave the country, especially in the past decade. The Dalai Lama is the ordained religious leader of the Buddhist faith and a radical voice for the protection of the oppressed. He was asked about the Buddhist nationalists in Burma in this interview. Then, another thing, I think many cases, some conflict in the name of religion, but reality, economy, reasons, or political sort of differences. So then people use the name of religion. So what is the motivation, for example, of the, the Buddhist monk Wiratu, who, who calls himself the Burmese Bin Laden? He's got tens of thousands of followers, and he's been accused of stoking anti-Muslim hatred. What's, what's his motivation? Dalai Lama doesn't have an answer for that question, but he's not far off. The Burmese economy has been under massive pressure in recent years, a pressure which is only compounded under the current pandemic. GDP growth in the Myanmar currency's valuation have fallen, and prices of fuel have massively increased. 700,000 Rohingya have been moved under the threat of violence from Rakhine State. This economic and political pressure created the need for a scapegoat, someone not at fault for the issues, but who the government could blame all the same. This would be the Rohingya. Irfan's arrival at the camp that we heard about earlier was far from the end of his story. Anwar and Irfan went on in subsequent interviews to tell us just how difficult the camp life is, as well as the journeys that followed. And what are, how is life in Bangladesh? Because some of the community members have family in Bangladesh, in Cox Bazaar, don't they? Are they, yeah, yeah. And are things getting better there? Uh, in terms of COVID? Yeah, or just life in the, in the camp. Well, uh, it's a, it's a refugee life, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a camp life, you know, it's tough life, you know, uh, if it is raining and then they're, uh, you know, uh, living under the rain, if it is hot, they are living under the hot, you know, so it's, it's pretty tough situations. They, you know, they suffer whether it is rain or storms or hot season or cold season. So any seasons they are uh, suffering there. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of hygiene, sanitations, in terms of foods, you know, there is no uh, no way that people can uh, you know practice social distancing in the camps. As you know, you know, the people who visited in the camps they know better than us. You know, but as far as we know, as far as you know from their report, so there is no way that you know 
in a 10, 10 by 10 uh, rooms, there are eight to 10 people. There's a long benches, you know, one, you know, it's, uh, uh, so there are a lot of people, you know, in small places around 800 to 1 million people. Yeah. So how do they practice their social distancing there? And so if there is a lot of illness, a lot of diseases, and a lot of, uh, if it is cold, uh, again, they are suffering because they don't have uh, winter clothes there, blankets. And the, the floor that they sleep on is, it's made up of bamboo dishes, you know. Clothing was an issue for Irfan as well. You know, I have nothing. I got just only one underwear. I have no shorts, you know. So people people kind of look at me like this. Hey, I said, dude, don't look at me. I, I lost my everything, you know. <laughs> give me something from you. Uh, I asked somebody, he gave me one shorts and then one is closed, you know. So, and then we come to the Malaysia. I have nothing. Yeah. Were people willing to help you on the boat? And huh? I, know you said, I know you said they gave you one pair of shorts. Were, did anyone give you food or what was that like? Uh, it's not much time. Uh, not much time, just they can give you to food over there for everybody, you know. They have what you call like making with rice so it's rice right they're making like very thin they make with rice so they give it to it's like this and then whatever find people eat them don't find nothing you know you can tell nobody so when we got a when we got at the destination thailand mountain and then that time they give us next morning, they give some rice and then one egg and then some other vegetable, I don't know. So I eat a little bit. And I don't like that food, you know, I have to eat a little bit, so. I eat a little bit and then rest of them, maybe I throw it away. So, and then when I got, uh, after next day, when I got uh, the big, big camp in Thailand, so the people, they know me, and then he gave me the food. I, I was crying over there. I said, I don't wanna, I don't wanna live over here. Take me with your house. I want to live over there, you know. Otherwise, otherwise, I want to live here. He told me, okay, and he gave me food. It's good food, though. And then after next day, I went to Malaysia. So I don't, I don't stay being long enough of the, the jungle over there. So. How long were you in Thailand? Well, I take a boat from Bangladesh to Thailand. They take me like 70 day, 70 day and night on the water. After 70 day, uh, we got, we got uh, the little mountain, you know? So we went that mountain and then we stayed there at night. And then another day, they have like big truck, so everybody put on the truck and then they take another another camp. So when I went that camp, I see the whole a lot of people out there, you know, like whole a lot. I was like, damn, this is the camp here. And then it's a lot of people live long time over there they lost their leg they are broke they are the you know so skinny like that you know it's really skinny maybe you know almost die you know you guys can just breathe you know so i saw them a lot of people 
Uh, I got a very quick though, and then I, when I get uh, when I get the Thailand, the who is the boss, is he know me, so he know the Anwar. Anwar, he talked to him. My little brother, come over there. He come let me know, and then he told him right away. He called him, and then we got it, and then we still over there like two day at the camp. After two day, another night we crossed the border from Malaysia. And then Anwar, he go pick up the, pick up me close to border. And then, so the driver, he drop off the people, right? And he have to drop off me. So Anwar, and then he go with the Anwar, he asked me, Erfan, Erfan. I see, yeah, yeah, it's me. Let me out <laughs> in the car, you know. So I was coming. Who is this? Is Erfan? Yeah, with me I have another guy. Who is the another guy? He's over there. He's come both together. And then Anwar, he don't know me. He said, "What is your name?" I said, "My name is Erfan Kamal Muhammad Kazid. Are you?" <laughs> he said, "I say, yeah." Yeah. And then you don't recognize me, you know, because he was love military case, you know, and then he called my parents and then they talked to me and then, oh yeah, this is your brother, you know, so they know, he know me over there and then, okay, then we got to take in shower and then buy some fresh clothes, you know. And then poor our mom come into the Kuala Lumpur, you know. <clears throat> when is when is Thailand to Malaysia border? It's kind of a little jungle, no too many buildings, something like that, you know. When I was, I asked my brother, where you live? He said, I'm living in Kuala Lumpur. We're going to go to Kuala Lumpur. <clears throat> I said, where is Kuala Lumpur? He says, over there. I was coming. Then that was all is complicated for me taking bus ticket, taking the bus, all is huge, huge, you know. I'm like, okay, and we, we coming. We got a big bus, really big bus, you know. <laughs> I said, brother, I never did that big bus. <laughs> yeah, he's, this bus is here a lot. I said, okay. And when we come, we see more rich, more rich people, you know, a lot of building, a lot of nice people, you know, a lot of nice car, muscles, you know. It's like, oh, oh, yeah, this is the world right here, you know. <laughs> and then we've been there, we're working until come here. You were in Malaysia for five years, did we just say? Yeah, maybe that. Something like that. And what was that like? Malaysia is like walking a lot of walk outside. You know? Yeah. Like what kind of work? What kind of sorry, you said it's it was a lot of working outside? Yeah. And what were you what kind of work were you doing outside? Uh they have big yard and grass cutting, you know? Mm -hmm. So they have machine in here and then got a grass cutting. So, and then I walk, I walk some one school. So they pay a little, well, grass cutting is too hard, you know? When you walk, when I was working at school, cleaning, cleaning at school, you know? says. So swiping and then garbage out and then you know that kind of stuff and then so it's when and first time that's my job is a little less money and then when i do grass cutting job it's a little more money it's a little bit harder you know so it's when the grass cutting be outside you know so I don't work the factory. I don't work factory. Maybe the factory. I don't work the factory. 
So also it's a lot of people working their project, you know, they're making big building houses, something like that. So you were in Kuala Lumpur, yeah. which is a really a big metropolitan area. Yeah. I mean, Kuala Lumpur is bigger than any American city, I think. Um, so it's a lot of people like to work over there because it's more hard work, more money. But I can't do that. I can't do that hard work, you know. <laughs> What's the difference between Malaysia and, and Bangladesh and Burma? Like that you remember, like from your experiences? So it's kind of all different. Mm -hmm. So when I live in Burma, it's, it's poor, a little, it's poor people, a lot of poor people, you know? When I moved to Bangladesh, whatever is cross uh, border, is close to border a little bit poor. After you cross the border, if you go bigger town, it's kind of like amazing, you know? It's a lot of lights, a lot of a lot of boards, you know, a lot of people go out or night and day is like same thing, you know. So all the time you can see people. In Burma, at night you don't see no people, no lights. It's really rural, right? It's so, more in nature, right? It's yeah. yeah. It's like it's dark and then so when it's dark, we got a flashlight. So we got a flashlight, you know. <laughs> in Bangladesh, we don't need flashlight though. At least if you go darker, maybe it's not there. I didn't see darker, always light, you know. But you went to find work in Chittagong, right? Yeah. Which is uh, the nearest big city to um, the border crossing area. That's second biggest in Bangladesh. So I went there just walking right away. And uh, and then just for math, I've talked about math. I I come to the Malaysia. I come to Thailand, you know, and then come to Malaysia. So now cross border. So we come in Malaysia. We know a lot of happen in from on the way, you know, is boat take a boat thailand and walking on the jungle you know so yeah um thank you so i'm just wondering so you actually met him in malaysia for the first time since you were three years old right no no you didn't see anwar yeah anwar you didn't see anwar since you were like three right yeah and then you saw him again for the first time one well, 2010. Right, when you got to Malaysia. Yeah, I got to Malaysia. So I'm just curious, you said that when you first went to Malaysia, you were thinking that you were going to go back to Bangladesh afterwards, right? Yeah. But you ended up coming to the U.S. instead? Huh? But then instead of going back to Bangladesh, you ended up going to the U.S., right? Yeah. So what changed? I can go in back in my Burma. Oh, sorry. Okay. Anwar was already in the resettlement process. Okay. <clears throat> and since Irfan was direct family, um, he made a, a decision to add him, which uh, extended the amount of time that they had to wait. Uh, they could have been resettled sooner if they didn't make a change to their application, um, but they did, and so. Anwar was in Malaysia for like 10 or 15 years, but Irfan arrived in 2010, right? And then you were resettled in 2015. So he, he spent a portion of that time there. Do you know how much sooner Anwar would have been able to go to the US if he hadn't made that change? Or we just don't know. Do you know the answer to that? Like if, uh, if you didn't come to Malaysia, when would Anwar come to the U.S.? Uh, let's say like 2013, 2012, maybe. Okay, so, so added a few years. Yeah, so when I was coming over there, I was a little kid, you know, he don't want to leave me over there alone. So he he gave me with like, he got a wife, he got a kid, so he gave me his family uh, card with UNICEF card. 
UNHCR card? Yeah, it's really fast. Nobody can have like one mask right with their card, you know. So I, I got to really like it. So that's a, a refugee identification card yeah. from the United Nations. Yeah, refugee. So once you have that card, then you are going to be able to apply for resettlement. So you basically need to be verified as a refugee by the United Nations in order to be resettled officially. Okay, so you were able to get that much quicker because yeah. it helped you. Yeah. So what was that like when you first saw Anwar after so long and he was willing to help you in all those ways? How did you feel? I feel really good with him. Yeah, I feel awesome. And since you came to the US, do you guys, do you live with Anwar? Are you very close? What's yeah. your relationship like now? I, I live with him all the time when I get to Malaysia. Still, I live with his house. So and now? Huh? No, I was just going to ask, and now do you still live with Anwar in yeah. Milwaukee? Yeah. And what's that like? Are you close with his family? His oh, kids? Oh, yeah. His kids, like, my, he called like, his father, you know. It's kind of like, it's, it's really good kids. I like them, you know. So it's, my, it's like my family, you know. So, yeah, it's really close. Because I live with his house, you know. First of all, I'm wondering, when you learned English, were you learning English from somebody that spoke... Is your native language Rohingya or Burmese or...? My language? Yeah. My language is Rohingya. Okay. But I can speak Burmese. I understand. So, yeah, my English is Rohingya. is my mother's language, you know, my father's language. So the Burmese is I'm learning. Um, I can I can speak a little bit Hindi. And I can speak a little bit Malaysia because I live over there for years, four years, you know. And then now I come to the United States. I have to speak English. So the English is I don't understand a lot of English. So. Also, I work a lot, you know, I got two jobs, three jobs, I was always busy. And then I working a lot, so, and then, you know, talking to people, learning. Yeah, we talked about this a lot, like, over the years, how, how you spend your time, you know. For Irfan, he's an adult here, and so his responsibility is to, to work like everybody else. Um, and so, when Rohingya find jobs here, it's mostly in manufacturing and factory and production settings where you work a lot of hours. And so it's hard to um, go to class as well. And we've seen that with adults. Um, and with younger adults like Irfan, who can pick up the language a little faster um, or might be a little more, have the, the aptitude and the time to, um, to go to class. Um, but it's still difficult, you know what I mean? Like, and so over the years, um, I don't know if there's been a continuation of classes for Irfan for any length of time, uh, whether it was at the neighborhood house or at MATC. So all of his English, uh, virtually all of his English is just kind of learning on the fly. Learning English is essential if the Rohingya are to establish themselves in their new home. But it's already creating some issues. Yeah, so... Um, people, yeah, a lot of kids, you know, born here in US, and some of the kids, most of the kids, come from Malaysia. And nowadays, kids are speaking mostly in uh, in Rohingya. Sorry, not in not in, in English. And uh, although parent speaks to them in Burmese and language and and Rohingya language, they are mostly speaking uh, in in English. And maybe in the future, you know, there are risk of losing our languages. Our kids won't speak Rohingya anymore. 
our bodies anymore. When I was visiting, I was, it was so fun to hear the teacher, Lynn, talking about, like, she was trying to learn a little bit of Rohingya, and they were talking about a lot about Rohinglish. Uh, yeah, again, you know, uh, as you know, you know, our peoples are very much uh, disunited, you know. This is, this is very huge in our community. So we don't know which language we adopt, you know, because somebody in London, you know, he says he created a language using the English alphabet, this is Rohingya language. And somebody from Saudi Arabia, he used another language in Arabic. He says this is Rohingya language. And somebody from Pakistan, he's, he created another language. In, in Urdu, they says it's a, it's a Rohingya language. And somebody from, who, who know the Brahmins, you know, he created another language. This is Rohingya. So I, I think we, Rohingya is a one community, right? And this is what I told people here. So which ones you think, you know, our language? There are four or five languages right now. One is in English, one is in Arabic, one is in Urdu, one is in Burmese. As one people, we should have one language. Like you see the America, they have only one language. Although people are speaking different signs, you know, they have only one alphabet and one language and one flag. Flag also the same, you know. They have a lot of flags <laughs> in Rohingya. So uh, it says there's a central, lack of a central uh, leaderships. Uh, in our community, and we are very much divided. Anwar is describing the difficulty of maintaining the Milwaukee Rohingya as one community, where there is so much communication across and through various languages. He's backed up by Irfan, who described this firsthand in a later interview. And then when I'm, when you're at home with Anwar and his wife and kids, do you, what language do you speak with them? Sometimes I speak with his case English and his wife is Burmese with Anoa Rohingya. Do his kids speak Burmese and Rohingya? Yeah, but they don't use that much. They try to speak all the time English, you know? So they just talk only their mom. And what do you think about that? Like, is it is it sad? Is it good that they speak mostly English? No, it's good. We speak English, we can learn, you know, barely. Well, if her mom, they don't speak English, right? So she can be learned with kids. They speak English, it's good. Do you feel like they help you learn English? Oh, with kids? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're learning a lot. They're learning a lot. They, they have class, you know? So they are just only a little old, like eight or seven and three. And when you speak English with them, do you feel like you're learning more English from them? Well, I know I speak English, you know. Yeah, you do, of course you do. <laughs> yeah, I understand what they try to say, you know. So, right now for me, someone told me English, I just listen, you know. Most part, it's really hard to understand, you know, because people can tell a lot of, a lot of, a lot of different then different English, you know. So. And you learned English with Andrew, who doesn't speak Rohingya, right? No. So how was that? Was it hard to learn from somebody that doesn't speak the language that you spoke, or how did that work? Yeah, if he doesn't speak my language, we go hang out. He couldn't understand me. I couldn't understand him. It's kind of like weird, right? So, whoa, nobody understood nothing, but I'm trying to learn. I say, it's English. I, all the time he talked with some other friend, I was listening very, you know, how it goes, how it's talking, what they're pulling, you know? <laughs> so why is this goes? 
I can speak English. My I I do I say okay. I give you the tarvore head. I share him to give. You know, speaking sounds. What is talking? What is this goes? You know, I follow. You know, so that way I can understand very quick. You know. about how you found Andrew. And I know that Anwar started this community and the organization with Andrew, right? So how did, how did that come to be? So I was coming here. I don't speak no English and I don't understand nothing. And I don't know where I go. I don't know the road. So, uh, I'm going to a school, his neighborhood's house, and then like an after-school program. Huh? Like an after-school program. After-school program. So I go over there, and then Andrew he was helping over there people, and then and then I got I got he's my teacher. So and then he teach me the English. Uh, he told me English. I don't understand nothing. I told him five. I show him my finger, so ten. <laughs> and then, you know, I'm trying to speak really hard, but I couldn't come in my mouth. So, you know, he said, okay. And then we go hang out, we talk, and he take out me. You know, he teach me English. He say, oh, this call is computer, this call is monitor, you know. <laughs> so, and then uh, oh, he teach me English and then that's why I can talk that much now. You know, I go work. Um, but clearly you and you and Andrew now are friends and, you know, spent know each other pretty well. So how did it go from him being your English teacher to you knowing each other outside of class? I think I, I understand. I can, I can talk. People told me I understand what to try to tell me, you know? So, but I don't, I think, I think I have to learn more because I don't want to be long. I want to be learning more. That way, I feel more good speaking English. You know. So, does Andrew still help you with learning English? Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm. I'm. A, I'm a make. I'm a. I'm a make a schedule with him, taking the class. You know. So. And now, would you say that he's your friend or your teacher? Or how would you describe your relationship with Andrew? We are really, really good, really good friendship. We are really good relationship, you know. So we kind of like brother, you know. So that's good. Irfan is lucky to have the support that he does. Anwar and Andrew are both essential to acclimating Irfan to the new environment. But even with this support, it can be difficult to thrive in the United States. We're about to ask him what other kinds of support he got upon arrival. Who else helped you when you first came to the U.S. to learn English and find a job and find a house? Um, find a job at the agency that tried to find me the job. But I don't like to, I don't like whatever they give me the job, you know. So always I look in my own job. So, and then if I need help or apply something, I told Andrew or my brother Anwar or, yeah, that's, that, that's true. I, they helped me, you know, those two people. 
Anwar and then Andrew. What Irfan had just said shows how difficult the acclimation process can be for immigrants and refugees. Refugees are expected to learn English and fend for themselves after a six-month period. After the food stamps and rent assistance wears off, many refugees are left with little communication skills and little money. Was there anyone from the government or anything who was helping you get settled here? Oh, the yeah, when I was come here is when I was new. They gave me food stamp. They gave me the rent for for six months. So after six months, I have to work. So, yeah. So that six months, I tried to go to school and I made the end. And, and then uh, after six, yeah, they helped me. After six months, I have no full time, no money. So, I work my own bill, my own pay, my own house. Was that six months enough time to find a job and start making your own money or was it not enough time to do that? No, you know, they say I stay home six months looking in America room. You know, we go into a school learning English, you know, so that way you can understand what their boss says. So that's why neighborhood and community solidarity is so important. Without the help of the government to provide English language education and continued financial support to refugees, Irfan and the Rohingya community at large are relying on the help of local community corporations like the Neighborhood House in Milwaukee to learn English and place them in a position to succeed in a country which has shown itself to be increasingly hostile towards refugees. Another massive issue for Minnesota is the election of Joe Biden's plan to inundate your state with a historic flood of refugees. President Trump, heard here at a Minnesota campaign rally, sounds right at home among the anti-Muslim jeers that permeate the room. He has successfully stoked the somewhat belied anti-Muslim sentiments that exist in the U.S. following the events of 9-11, spewing phrases such as radical Islamic terrorism and harvesting. Biden and crazy Bernie Sanders have agreed on a manifesto. Did you see last night? I didn't agree. I didn't agree after the show. They said, oh, actually he did. Oh, great. They fact-checked. They found out he made a mistake, slight mistake. It's the worst thing you've ever seen. But they pledged a 700% increase in refugees. 700%. Congratulations, Minnesota. Congratulations. Now, and what about Omar, where she gets caught harvesting? Harvesting is the anti-refugee idea that massive extended families abuse the refugee system to allow their families entrance to the U.S. But for people like Anwar and Irfan, there seems to be little choice. Refugees in the U.S., especially Muslim refugees, have faced a 20% increase in hate crimes under the Trump administration, while the Rohingya brothers and sisters continue to be oppressed by the Burmese government back home. What the hell is going on? I hope your U.S. attorney is involved. What? What is going on with Omar? I've been reading these reports for two years about how corrupt and crooked she is. Let's get with it. Let's get with it. I mean, frankly, harvesting's terrible, but it's the least of the things that she has done. 700% increase, refugees coming from the most dangerous places in the world, including Yemen, Syria, and your favorite country, Somalia, right? You love Somalia. This guy loves Somalia. Biden will turn Minnesota into a refugee camp, and he said that. Overwhelming public resources, overcrowding schools, and inundating your hospitals. You know that. It's already there. It's a disgrace what they've done to your state. It's, just, it's absolutely, it's a disgrace, okay? Biden has even pledged to terminate our travel ban on jihadist regions, opening the floodgates to radical Islamic terrorism. Remember, I used to talk about it all the time. I got a ban. Remember they said he'd never be able to get a ban? And then I lost at the lower court. I lost at the Court of Appeals. And they said, he lost, he lost in huge stories. Then I won at the Supreme Court. They didn't even report it. Yeah. 
And they still say he lost on the travel ban. He lost, he lost. But they're talking about the first two courts. They forget to say that at the Supreme Court, we were, these are the most dishonest people. It's hard to believe, actually. But look at all those cameras. That's a lot. My administration is keeping terrorists, extremists, and criminals out of our country. And we're keeping them the hell out of Minnesota. Trump is proud of his record on immigration. But it's attitudes such as these that make life for people like Irfan so hard. Yeah, very much I'm learning English for six months, whatever I can, you know. I wake up in the they give me a bus card. So I go wake up in the morning and I take the bus, you know, and I go in the school over there. And then still I'm learning, learning now where I am now here. Um I'm no I'm learning myself now, you know. So I'll go to school when I have time. You would go to school for what? What would you want to study in school? Um, I want to be, I want to be, well, I want to be English, you know? You know, if I know the English, I can have good job. You know, so I want to be reading better, writing better, you know, so when I had that level and then I can change some other engineer or working go work with the aeroplane, something, you know, <laughs> my fancy was working with aeroplane, you know. But in order to achieve dreams like these, Irfan and the Ringa community need support. Awareness raising or six months of benefits isn't enough. For people whose lives have been upended in their natural homes, there simply isn't enough assurance that there will be prosperity and security in the future. Despite Trump's defeat in the election, there still remains a hateful rhetoric that he helped spread across the country. The battle for not only the rights of refugees to enter the country, but for continued support after the arrival rages on. With the COVID-19 pandemic hitting the Milwaukee area hard, the Ringa community especially has felt the pain that the virus brings. Given their status in the U.S., the lack of additional federal benefits hits communities like these even harder. How was the, I mean, by the way, how's COVID and the Rohingya community are? Uh, uh, our community uh, is affected uh, pretty badly. Uh, I see also a lot of uh, cases in our community. And we saw two or three deaths as well. And then, you know, so yeah, our community is affected pretty badly. On top of this, uh, you know, people are more hesitant, you know, uh, to follow the guidelines. You know, I don't know whether it's because of the language problem or because of the, they just don't want to follow, you know. So we have created, you know, uh, some, uh, video contents, you know, to educate them about the, uh, about the COVID-19. Mm. Uh, and so uh, that's what, what we can do. That's what we can do uh, as an uh, organization as nice as going here. And then, uh, yeah, every household, every household has a, a COVID, but uh, not some of them, some of the older people, who has uh, some other problems, some other sickness, sickness. Yeah, they ended up in the hospital, but some of the people who are very strong and young, they have mild symptoms and then they stay at home, you know. So yeah, we have, I think, two to three deaths because of the COVID. Yeah, uh, mostly from the complications from the COVID. Whether it be COVID, escaping from Rakhine State, Battling through the conditions of the refugee camps or learning English in the United States, the thing which is most evident is that the Rohingya community is one that refuses to give up. Their resilience in the face of racism, Islamophobia, and dangerous conditions on their way to the United States has proven that they are not simply hangers-on hoping for relief or handouts in the United States. They are a people without a home, but consistently working to build one here in the United States. By telling their stories, they can educate not only each other on their history, struggles, and triumphs, 
but also educate those whose beliefs about refugees are tinged not by reality, but by the harmful rhetoric that is sprayed, even from our highest offices.